But 2,000 years ago, Paul writes this to Timothy, and he says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but rather she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she shall be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. I love the smirks on so many of your faces as I just looked up from my Bible. All righty. Okay. Now, what did you hear? <laughs> what or where did your mind and heart just go as those words were read? What have you already assumed about the passage? I already know what this means, or I already don't know what this means. What have you already assumed about me? And it's killed a messenger. I can't believe he would read these things. Or maybe what have you already assumed about what I might say? Have you already made up your mind as to what the passage means? Do you like it? Or do you dislike it? Do you have your own interpretation of this passage? And how much are you able to be honest within yourself and say, I bring a certain amount of life and... Okay? Now, I'm going to be honest with you, all right? We are embarking between chapter 2, verse 8, all the way into chapter 4 on what will likely be some of the most challenging sermons that I ever preach here at Calvary, all right? Now, I have a mantra whenever God calls me into passages that I know are going to be controversial and he wants me to say things. My mantra is, I can run faster scared than you mad, okay? So I, I, I always, and I know where my exit is. I've got one right there. I actually unlocked the deadbolt. So all I got to do is turn the knob if it gets really gnarly in here, all right? And I know we're going to walk into parts of the Bible that are controversial. They're difficult to understand. I mean, let's be honest. I don't know about you, but I look at this and I go, really, Paul? Really? You're writing this stuff? Like, come off it. And I would even say that if you get the right interpretation of this, it's even harder to apply. Today we're going to start to read this and study this and ask God to guide us in areas where I believe our culture, the world that we live in, the, the people that we rub shoulders with and, and live life with, both inside the church, in here, 
and outside the church is not only under attack, but quite frankly and honestly, the idea of gender, the idea of how men and women interact is being rewritten, reinterpreted, and reapplied to every facet of the way we live life. It just is. That's reality. Now, let's be honest. How does the world see womanhood or manhood? How would the world respond to the question, what does it mean to be a man? I would submit, if you watch television or magazines or see sports and all this, I would say that men today in the 21st century of Western civilization, men are betrayed in one of three ways, either gay or a jock like a UFC fighter or Homer Simpson. That's your three options for men on modern television. All right? How are women betrayed on modern television? Either she's better than a man or she's completely sexual and promiscuous or she's this nerdy type that's almost laughable. Those are your options, basically, if you watch television. And so what do you do with that? How does the church see manhood or womanhood? Or how do you see it? How do you answer that question of a young person coming to you and says, what does it mean to be a man? And it's funny because if your child or a young person or a college kid or a student or a fellow worker says, well, what does it mean to be a man? Or what does it mean to be a woman? You will find that even in church, we often answer that question with things like, well, a man is humble, a man um, is patient, a man is kind. And those are true, but those are, ver- those are the same of men or women. We often describe qualities that are the same for men or But what makes a man a man? What makes a man different from a woman? And, I mean, guys, I don't have to go very far. Let's, okay, let, case study. If a man stands in front of a closet and says, I have nothing to wear, what does he mean? He's got no clothes or, or nothing's clean, right? If a woman looks in front of a closet and says, I have nothing to wear, what does she mean? She's got to go shopping. Exactly. Right? There's just differences. It's not just biology. It's also psychology. Men and women are different. But the world would say, are there differences between men and women? Now, I don't know about you because I know I love the fact we have the young people. When I was even younger than James, probably more like Luke's age, I remember girls singing this song to me all the time, all right? Anything you can do, I can do better. You ever hear that one? Have you heard that one yet, guys? Wait for it. It's coming, all right? I heard that. I grew up with that. Anything you can do, I can do better. I've heard that. I grew up with that all my life, as if somehow we were in a competition, and I didn't even know about it. I didn't even know about it. It's a fact, though, or is it a fact, that men are different from women? Well, I will tell you, on the little mini case study that Debbie and I have, which is we have two boys and a a girl, I can tell you that they're very different. All right? I am so glad that God allowed me to have the boys first and the girl last because I find the girl difficult. She scares me. All right? She's not in anybody's eyesight, but she scares me. She's, I was always afraid of her. When she was past me, I thought I could break her. And yet, in some way, she's enormously tough. Each of them has their own personality, but two of them are male and one of them's female, and they are very different. And yet, 
what does the world say? It might shock you to believe that this semester in September, a professor at Hunter College in New York City, her name is Lorna Smidman, will start her course titled Reimagining Gender with these opening lines. My working assumption in this course is that gender is already imaginary in the first place. That meaning, meaning that it's construction or is in the, I, I, a fiction that we all live and work in our daily lives. That's how she starts the course. That gender is imaginary. I don't know if you realize it or not, but in 2015, we live in a world where Amazon, starting in January of 2016, maybe even before Christmas, will stop designation between boys' toys and girls' toys. It'll just be toys. We live in a world in our country of Canada where in as early as junior high in Ontario, two school systems will start September with genderless bathrooms. You choose what gender you are, and then you go to that washroom. I'm not making this up. This is reality. This starts in September. We live in a world where the distinction between men and women is getting blurred all the time. John Piper writes this. Confusion over the meaning of manhood and womanhood today is epidemic. The consequences of this confusion is not a free and happy harmony among gender-free persons. The consequence, rather, is more divorce, more sexual confusion, more sexual abuse, more promiscuity, more social awkwardness, and more emotional distress and suicide that comes from the loss of God-given identity. And I hope and pray that as we walk through this, you will actually discover some amazing things. I hope that we pop some balloons of traditionalism that people think what it means to follow God and being biblical men and biblical women. Because being a biblical man and a biblical woman is not Victorianism. It's not Stepford Wives. It's not, you know, Betty Crocker. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that men and women are so equal and have experienced so many things. And over the next few weeks, we're going to walk through all of that. We're going to discover it together. But the issue of manhood and womanhood strikes at the core of who we are and who God is. It really does. Now, you might say, wow, Steve, that's quite an introduction. All right. What has all that got to do with 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 15? And what has that got to do with us here at Calvary? Well, I'm glad you allowed me to at least imaginarily believe you asked that question. All right. Okay. As we walk through 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, we are going to discover from God how we're to act like Christians. Most importantly, we're going to discover how we act as a church in front of a watching world to the glory of a holy God. Now, part of knowing, a part of knowing that is knowing what God's word actually says. Do you know how many times I have conversations with people where people assume what God's word says and they assume what I believe and they tell me then what I believe and they tell me what God's word says. And then you say, where is that in God's word? I don't know. I heard it somewhere. All right. And we make all kinds of decisions and all these types of things. And so we got to know what God's word actually says. We need to know that what God's word says and how we're to trust and obey it in our world. How do we obey it in our culture? 
And I would submit that sometimes that means pushing back against the culture. Right now, the culture says it's okay to do certain things where the Bible says, no, it's not. And so we're going to have to push back against the culture. But in some cases, we need to adapt with the culture. Not everything about the culture is wrong. One of my highlights of my short ministry here at Calvary Baptist was when you first welcomed Debbie and I on that Sunday night and this whole room was decorated in Newfoundland culture. And there are so many of those things that are wonderful and beautiful and should be celebrated and embraced and passed on to generations. It was a thrill for me to be down at uh, Middle Cove Beach this past week. And I can't wait for next month because only our oldest son has ever experienced the Capelin rolling of Newfoundland. And I can't wait to take our other son and our other daughter and smoosh egg, fish eggs in their faces and all that kind of good stuff. I mean, that's a tradition and a cultural thing worth doing. I mean, just embrace it, all right? But we must always pull back and remember the big picture, okay? Let's look back at 1 Timothy chapter 1. We need to remember that 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus are actual letters. These are real letters written by Paul under the inspiration of God. And they are written to two real people, a guy named Timothy and a guy named Titus. They were his friends. They both came to Christ under his ministry. They did life group together. They did discipleship together. They, they, they went out and ate together. They, they spent time together. They were good buddies. And Paul, because he's an apostle, sends these two guys to one to the church of Ephesus and one to the churches of Crete. And they're charged with the task of teaching these churches and preaching to these churches, confronting these churches, changing these churches. But ultimately, as we've learned in 1 Timothy chapter 1, loving the churches and guiding them. And they do this in real time with real people facing real issues in a real culture. And herein lies the issue. All right. Here's the questions we got to wrestle with. Number one, how do we interpret the Bible? How do we interpret the Bible? Is it up for grabs? Is it up to everybody's opinion? If there's 80 of us here, are we all entitled to our own opinion? How do we interpret the Bible? Number two, how do we know when to take the words exactly as they are written? And if you want to know if that's difficult, read some of the Old Testament. Do you know how many times I get people that will call me? I had a lady this week call me and ask me, do you believe that if a child's rebellious, you should stone them? I'm like, well, that depends on the day. Um, no. But it, you get asked that because that's in the Old Testament. So how do you know when it's literal? How do you know when you're supposed to do that? Thirdly, how or when do we take them and have to reinterpret them based on our time and our life and our culture? So how do we know how to read our Bible and go, okay, now that's the words that were said. This is what it meant to that first century audience or that Old Testament. But here's what God means for it for us today. And then finally, how do we know when to do this and when not to do this? Because guys, listen, every one of you in this room does all four of these things every day. Every one of you, if you pick up a Bible and read it, you do these things, whether consciously or subconsciously, whether because somebody's already told you or whatever the conclusion, you do this every day. Now, I have a dear friend of mine, and maybe the way to illustrate this 
He's in Ontario. Him and I were in ministry in Prince Edward Island. Uh, He pastors a church in Pembroke, Ontario, aptly named Calvary Baptist Church. All right. He uh, went to his ministry about five years ago and he preached through First Timothy. So I waited for him to do it, see if he survived. And since he's still alive, I took a shot at it. All right. But him and I were talking and and when when we were talking, we were talking about this passage. He told me that he started this sermon with this. Have you ever traveled in another country? Is anybody, well, let me put it there. Have you ever gone to another church in another country? Put your hand up. Wow. A large portion of you have. That's awesome. All right. Have you ever gone to another, on a missions trip, or maybe you've gone on a vacation where your vacation spread over a Sunday, so you decided to go to that church. Now, that church that you went to in another country, all right, I want you to think about something. What was it like? Picture it in your mind. What did you notice or see or smell or hear? What were the people like? How were they dressed? What type of music did they sing? How long was the service? How long was the sermon? How were you greeted? Who prayed? And when did they pray? Where did everyone sit? These are just some of the things that if you've traveled in other countries and you visit other churches, God has been so kind and gracious to me. I've been able to go to church in Israel and in Russia and in Jamaica and all parts of the United States. And I've learned so many different things. In Russia, the service lasts three hours. Standard. Three hours. Two to three guys preach. They always have communion. It's real wine and everybody drinks from one cup. And they got one big giant loaf of bread and everybody breaks it up and everybody passes it to somebody else and everybody eats it. That's an exercise of faith. All right. But they love each other. They they hang out together in Jamaica. It was it was very different. Again, the, the colors, it was very formal. Everybody, the men all dressed up in their Sunday best. Most of them in three piece, not a blazer and a jet ja- and, and a pant blazer vest and pants in Jamaica. Jamaica. All right. I near turned into liquid when I was in Jamaica on a Sunday, but they celebrated. The music was lively. The average service went about two hours. Men and women were involved. The preacher preached for at least an hour and then they always ate afterwards. It was an all-day affair. Now, in Russia, here's one for you, the men kiss everybody. They take that gold, greet each other with a holy kiss, like that's for real for them. All right? In Russia, you kiss the men and shake the women's hands. All right? Yeah, that messes with your boundaries. All right? Especially when they really lean in there and rub the face and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, James, this is as bad as it sounds, all right? Some of them leave wetness behind and everything, all right? Whereas in North America, men shake hands and we hug the ladies. Because the men don't. If you ever watch a man hug in church, you always notice, right? They do that lean in, double thing, pat, pat, and then you break, right? Like that's how you do it as men in North America, right? That's how you do it. All these different types of things. When I was in Israel, it was very, very formal. The music was incredible. It was five and six part harmonies. But the men all sat in one area. And the women all sat in another area. In Russia, all the women wore a scarf over their head in church. Every one of them. They wore a scarf. Not a hat, a scarf. Now, how do you know who's right and who's wrong? 
These are great things because you learn, though, in all of that, if you've experienced church, in fact, my favorite thing, I went to a church, I was 17, 18 years old, I grew up here in Newfoundland, had never been outside much of this city, and at 17, moved to Minneapolis, got into a quartet, traveled to a church where it was basically all black. I mean, literally, it was the four of us that were white, all right? Walked into this church, and it was the first time I ever realized, I'm the minority, all right? And a beautiful sister came and met us at the door, and she radiated, but she was a blessed woman, all right? And she came up, and here were words. She said, ah, and she introduced us. She said, I'm the mama of this church. And she took all four of us and group hugged us and ushered us into the church, and she showed us off like she had a brand-new car. And it was amazing. And that church, everybody swayed. And, every, and here was the thing that struck me about that church. The preacher got up, and then as he preached, everybody talks. Everybody talks. If he says, can I get a witness, everybody's like, mm-hmm, uh-huh. And, I mean, hankies are going, things are waving. If he says something really good, he goes, bring it now, preach it. If he says something controversial, he goes, mm-mm-mm, back that truck up now. And, and I'll be honest, I kind of like that. All right? I'm getting more life out of you all right now than I've had in four months. All right? It, it, but everybody's different. All these churches are different, the men and women, how they interacted. So how do you do this? The beauty of traveling is like this is that you are probably like me. Do you know how many times I sat in Russia and Jamaica and Israel and all these places and said, well, they don't do church the way we do church. And there were things that we did in each of those experiences that I thought, man, I would love to do that at church at home all the time. It's beautiful to see the diversity of how God's church. Now, the one thing they all had in common was Jesus Christ and him crucified and the gospel. The one thing we all had in common is families in need and people that were hurting. The one thing we all shared in common was the need for more. The desires and the pressures of the world and culture. And it was interesting because when you're in Russia, they talk about their culture. When you're in Jamaica, they talk about their culture and how culture is trying to squeeze its way into the church. When you're in Israel, it's the same thing. Wherever I've been, it's the same thing. Culture is trying to get in there. But when you actually work through a couple of these things, and you're actually honest and you can laugh together, you will ask yourself this question. When is a clear-cut command of God to be obeyed exactly as it is written? And what is a principle that is to be obeyed and expressed in different ways? And you will wrestle with these. All right, and at the risk of being trite, just to throw out an example, I will give you one. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talks about women covering their heads. And from that, there's been an entire uh, discussion in Western culture. There's been inquire denominations built up about hat wearing and, and, and scarves and stuff like that. And I interacted with quite a bit of this when I was in Russia. In Russia, all the ladies wear scarves. So you can imagine then when I went to Russia and I met with 30 pastors and we spent 8 to 12 hours a day together and we were studying God's word, you can bet you that came up. Because at some point, some guy walked up to me and said, what do the women wear in your church? And he added with that kind of tone, all right? So I knew I was being set up. And I said, close. <laughs> and then he, I knew he wanted to get to the point. So he said, do the, do the women wear scarves in your church? I'm like, some do, some don't. So he's like, well, then they don't obey all your women, don't obey the Bible. And he took me right to 1 Corinthians 11. Now, we're not going to get into 1 Corinthians 11, 
But what I can say is some people, so you have to ask yourself, is that a commanded way to be obeyed word for word, which is that God meant for all women of all the world, of all time, anywhere, to always in church together to have something to cover their head? Or is it a principle that says women are supposed to show some semblance of how they work together and complement with men and in marriage? Because mostly this was about young ladies and their families with their dad and, mo- and wives with their husbands. So in our culture, I would submit that the principle is upheld. How? Well, when Debbie and I got married, we exchanged these things. These things let everybody know that I'm taken and she's taken. And everybody knows it. In fact, when I was dating, before I was married, as I got older, the first thing you do is you look at that hand to find out if there's hardware there or not. Because if there's no hardware, that lets you know, hey, now I can stick my chest out and go, hey, baby. <laughs> like, like, you know, right? And the other thing is, Debbie, in an act of love, took my last name. In our culture, one of the ways that we describe and display that we are a couple is Debbie takes on my last name. So could it be that in our culture, 1 Corinthians 11 is lived out principally by the fact that there is an an obvious outward sign that we are together and an obvious outward sign that we complement one another? Have fun with that, all right? Maybe I've just spun off a whole new controversy. But these are some of the things that I want you to realize. So in helping, Paul is helping the Ephesians and he's helping us walking through this very process to think about what we've learned. All right. In first Timothy, chapter two, verses one to seven. What did we learn? We learned the content of prayer. Okay, we learned about the content of prayer. What is the content? We are supposed to pray. uh, Daniel, I thank you for doing this because this is something that's on my heart. We are to pray for all people all the time, starting with those into authority. That's what it says in first Timothy, chapter two. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high authority that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That's the content of our prayer. So Paul is saying, church, when you get together, the way to be unified, the way to show this city that you're really a church is the way you spend time, deliberate time, praying for people to know Jesus. We're to pray for all people. We're to start with those in authority. But the other content of our prayer is we're supposed to pray for the salvation of people. It's not just good enough when someone says to you, you know what, I'm, I'm praying for you. I've gotten to the habit when someone says that to me, I'm saying, what are you praying about? What are you praying about for me? Because it's so easy to lapse into cliches. I'm praying for you. Okay, what, what are you going to ask? Because you might be asking for something I don't need. So when I talk to my friends and I build a relationship with them, I was talking with an unsaved friend this week and I told him I was praying for him. And he said, oh, yeah. And I said, and you know what I'm praying, don't you? And he gave me this look. He said, yeah, yeah, I know you're praying that. But guys, that, that's not to be ashamed of or run away from. It's a glorious thing. We are to pray for all people and we're to pray for them to know Jesus. We're to pray that they will know salvation. And we are to pray that God would be worshipped. Isn't it, should not be the desire of our heart that more and more people in this city would worship God? Would that thrill you? 
Are you happy to be the minority? <laughs> I'm not. I'm content to be the minority. I'm not happy about it. Well, I read Revelation and I read about myriads of nations and tongues and tribes and people of all nations and they're all getting together and everybody's singing and everybody's loving and everybody's loving Jesus and celebrate. Are you not? Like, I'm like, man, I'm digging that. I'd, I'd really like to be a part of that. Well, would it be wrong for us then as a church to pray for that here in St. John's now for real revival? Like, guys, you know what? Listen, I want to be the modern church, but some stuff is worth still praying about, including revival and renewal. We want to do these things. But now in verses 8 to 10, we're going to look at the conduct of prayer. So the title of my sermon, as you see it there in your bulletin, if you have it, is How Men and Women Should Pray in the Church. And right away you should know that I'm not a traditionalist. I'm not about Victorianism. Because the title says How Men and Women Should Pray in the Church. You'll notice I didn't say How the Men Should Pray in Church. I said the men and women, because that's what the passage teaches. The passage teaches how should men and women pray in the church. And we're going to look at that, and we're going to see the conduct of men and women in verses 11 to 15, and then in chapter into chapter 3. And as we dig into this, I hope that we'll come up with some applications for us here in St. John's in 2015. Now, please, please, please. See what Paul is really going after here. This is not about being cutting edge or controversial or difficult. Paul is actually going after something we all agree that we need to have gone after, and that's our heart. God's going after our heart. And from there, our relationships with God and with each other. Because remember what I've said since we started this, all right? Remember the three R's. Right doctrine leads to right living and always results in right relationships. Every time. That's foolproof. Right doctrine will always lead to right living and will always result in right relationships. And here's what I mean. If you say you believe the Bible teaches this or that, but you don't live and apply that or this, there will always be a breakdown in how you interact with those around you. Now, I am not saying that having a humble, honest desire to pursue God and His Word means everyone will like you and that you won't disagree with someone or that you won't fail someone or someone won't fail you or that we won't deal with and struggle with sin or that all will be well all the time. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible does teach is this. What it does mean is this, that if you and I trust Him and if we follow him through the teaching of his word and we allow his word to be our authority and not the culture if the word of god is our authority and not our feelings if the word of god is our authority and not even our experiences then we will know how to treat and handle and deal with our own ongoing change to be christ-like and those around us so if you are pursuing god and his word and you're letting god's word be your authority I'm not saying you're going to live a Skittles life. What I am saying is that as you face hardships, as you fail and those around you fail, as you butt up against those who disagree with you, as we struggle with knowing our place in our culture, in our time, God will give us mercy and grace and wisdom and patience, and we will know how to treat each other as we do it.
I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty cool. That sounds something worth pursuing. And so now, (laughs) with all that context, and I'm out of time, all right, I want to just give you the background, the first point, and then we're going to clue it up, all right? And hopefully that means you're going to come back if I haven't ticked everybody off, all right? So let's look at this, all right? Number one in verses 8 and 9, we look at number one, and this is all we're going to get to, the place of prayer. The place of prayer. Look at what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. I would, or I desire then, and that word desire means I'm commanding. This is not a suggestion that he's not saying I long for or I wish. That, that English word means this is the desire. This is the goal. This is what you are going to tell this church to do. I desire then that in every place men should pray. In every place men should pray. But what does Paul mean? I mean, right from there, you can start with a question. Well, what does that mean? In every place men should pray. I mean, in another book to the Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, let me put these words on the screen and see what you think. Where Paul says this, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Now, again, Daniel, you prayed this in your prayer. And we wouldn't just read the word, we reflect on it. See, again, something doesn't have to be complicated to be profound. Look at the opening gamut there. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. That's pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? Um, so if you're a Christian and you're a follower of Christ and someone does evil to you, you're not to return evil back to them. I mean, that's not complicated. Now, even that pushes back against the culture, doesn't it? Doesn't the culture say, I'll treat you the way you treat me? You pat my back, I'll pat yours. Here's God's word saying, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil. But always seek to do good to anyone and to everyone. You see, that's why I think Paul is telling the Ephesians church to be all about prayer for the city, for the lost. Because remember what we learned as we've been going through prayer? The more you pray for people, the harder it is to hate them. The more you pray for people, the harder it is to hold things against them. So when the world push backs at us or makes fun of us or doesn't make things easy for us in our Christianity, we won't get bitter. We won't get resentful. We won't get into just arguments. We'll just pray. And if they need help, do you remember any of you watch Survivor? Come on now, confession. Come on. All right, there's a couple. Ah, no, there's more than that. I know that. You might have gotten bored with it. I'm not saying if you watch now, but have you ever watched Survivor? Ah, there we go. All right, okay. Do you remember the very first season? That was my favorite season. The very first one, the trucker, the trucker that came in like third, that lady, and she got up and, and the dude that wanted that Richard Hatch fella. Remember when she just unleashed her fury? She said, if you were on the side of the road dying and needing help, I wouldn't stop and give you any. Remember that? That's the world. That's the world's culture. That's the world's philosophy. But listen, what's the Christian culture? Well, isn't it funny that Jesus gave us an illustration? When a guy said, who's my neighbor? And he talks about this Samaritan guy who was considered a Jewish half-breed, was despised by everybody. In fact, in Israel, racism with the Samaritans went at a level that none of, very few have known racism like they've experienced racism. And he shows his love and he extends himself. And so in our passage here, Peter, Paul says, seek to do good to anyone and to everyone. Rejoice always. Notice this, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. 
That fights against the culture, doesn't it? Now, listen to this. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. That is, don't despise, don't resent, don't fear, don't want to gather in the church and hear God's word read and preached. But here's your role. But test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. That is, flesh this stuff out. Get into God's word. So is Paul telling us that we're supposed to pray everywhere as in everywhere? So, you know, like wherever you're at, pray. In the large sense of the word, pray without ceasing is true. But again, what's Paul doing? Paul is writing to Timothy, sending him to Ephesus, which is a church. He is telling the church, Timothy, tell the church when they gather, wherever they gather as a church, this is what they should do. And I posted this on my Facebook this morning. There is no place where God's people cannot pray. And in the end, there is no place where they will not pray. So, but in our context here, this is what you need to know. So when Paul says, I will, I desire then that in every place that men should pray. So he's not talking about, all right, let's get all the guys and let's spread you out everywhere in the room so that there's some prayers being offered up in every square inch of this room. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about when we gather, when the men and women gather to pray, that they gather, whether it's in house churches, whether it's in this church, where all the other churches in this city, that they gather to pray and that this is the prayers that they should be praying for all people, for authorities, for salvation, for God's worship, for unity and dwelling together. So that's what he's saying. And then he notices the posture of prayer. The posture of prayer. Notice again, lifting up holy hands. Lifting up holy hands. Now, I really put, like thought through getting all of you to lift up holy hands. And I wondered if I could pull it off here. All right? You know, can, can every one of you just put your hands in the air? Look, see? And now, look, nobody's bursting into flames. Not, not yet. Not yet. That's right, John. Not yet. There you go. All right? Lift, lift it up. Now, do you really think that Paul is saying for us to be a real church, to be really holy, that you must pray lifting up holy hands is he saying that this is exactly what you're supposed to do because there's nowhere in the bible where it gives you an express command about the posture of prayer in fact it's an interesting study if you go through the bible you're going to find all kinds of posture in prayer in psalm 95 the psalmist says come let us worship and bow down didn't we all bow our head in prayer when we prayed together he says let us kneel before the lord our maker Daniel, and Dan, when we read about his life, what did he do three times a day? He what? He knelt. He knelt and prayed, facing Israel three times a day towards Jerusalem. Stephen knelt to pray as he was stoned to death. Jesus knelt to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. But if you study the Old Testament, Moses lay flat on his face. Moses in Numbers 16 lay flat on his face. At the end of the month, Brother Paul is going to be preaching the last Sunday in May. And he's going to preach in Joshua, start in Joshua. Well, Joshua in Joshua chapter 5 laid down on his face when he prayed. He prays on his face. So did Ezekiel. 
the angels and the elders of Revelation, when they go before God to worship him, they fall down, they, they kneel, and they bow themselves down right low to the ground before God and before the throne. But then you find in public prayer, there was standing. In the temple, in Second in Chronicles chapter 6, Solomon bowed, but the people stood in prayer. Jehoshaphat stood in prayer. And so it became that in all the Jewish synagogues, everybody stood to prayer. That was one of the unique things I found in Russia. In Russia, every time you pray, you stand. It does, there are two things I learned in Russia. One, a Bible never touches the floor. Ever. It never touches the floor. To them, that is mistreating God's word. Because they, they, you know Russia's only had God's word for the last hundred years. Not like us. So God's word is very, very precious to them. And they never, never, you will never see a Bible on the floor. And whether it's grace, whether it's in church, it doesn't matter where you are. When someone says, let's pray, everybody stands up. Kids, ba even babies get strength in their legs to stand up. All right? Everybody stands. Okay? So they're standing in public prayer. But then there's the raising of hands in Psalm 134. Come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. And so we've seen that Timothy is to call the church together and they are to pray regularly. They are to greet with great unity. And we've seen that there's flexibility in how they meet and how often they meet. There's great flexibility in what physical posture they take. And I think we should do some of these different things. I love it sometimes when we stand in prayer, when we bow down in prayer. I love it when I've been in some meetings where people kneel in prayer. And we've done it all. See, the, the, the command is not wrapped up in the where and the how. The command, as we're going to see next week, is in the why, which is in here. All right? Which is in here. And Paul assumes that the church will pray. Now listen to me. Paul assumes that both men and women will pray in the congregation. He assumes that a posture of prayer will be taken, but his concern is not the frequency or the posture. More impo importantly, and in fact, most importantly, is their attitude in prayer. Now, what can I give you to take home with you in this? I want to give you one principle to take home on this May 24th weekend about the place of prayer and the posture of prayer. I want you to see, first of all, that these verses offer hope for us in a fallen world. That's the one thing I want you to take. When we deal with difficult passages, when we deal about men and women, when we deal about the church, when we're dealing about all of the things that we're dealing with, I want you to take know that if you leave here, why it's worth wrestling with this, why I want to make sure that we're Jonathan's just church, because this church is known for this, all right? This is written into our documents. If you want to be a member of this church and you want to be baptized in this church, you're going to butt up against this whole men-women stuff. And I don't want us to do it where we think this is what we're about and this is what defines us. I want us to be about Jesus and his gospel. We'll follow God's word. I want us to, to know, again, right doctrine leads to right living and will result in right relationships. But I also think, with all my heart, 
as I've been on this journey, that often churches can have stands and have positions on stuff and people agree to it. But when you really ask people, do you know what you believe and why you believe it? Like, well, not I, I know it's written down somewhere or, you know, go talk to the pastor or go talk to the elders or that deacon. He seems to he was here along like he's like Methuselah. He came over with no one to boat. Go talk to him. I want you guys, from the youngest to the oldest, I want our young people to know what it means. I want our young men to know what it means to be a man. Because what God created them for is to give him glory by being a man. And for our young ladies, I want them to know what it means to be a woman. Because God created them as a woman to bring him glory. And while there's so many things that we share, God has called us as men and women to different responsibilities. And that's what makes the gospel powerful. And so I want you to see that these verses offer hope for us. Paul is telling this church through Timothy. He's telling you and I here at Calvary, if we make prayer a priority, if we seek to make our prayer times here at church about God and what he wants, and it's not pretend and it's not religious and it's not about show and stature and recognition, then God will not only hear our prayer, but are you ready for this? He'll answer our prayer and people will get saved. I said to Daniel this morning, we should pray for people in this city to get saved so much that if it goes a Sunday goes and we don't pray for it, everybody notices we didn't pray for it. It should not be that, man, that was a good service. We prayed for the lost. No, this should be where this is such a part of our DNA because I really believe when we start to obey God's word, and let's start praying for people to come to Christ, expecting God to use us to see people get saved. They are going to get saved. They are going to get saved. And he will open up the windows of heaven and pour out blessings that we'll not be able to receive it. But you see, we need to realize that every time we meet, men and women prayed for the salvation of people. So ladies... Over the next few weeks, I pray that you will be freed from the tyranny of traditionalism and culture's definition of who you are. And men, I pray that you will embrace the freedom of what it means to be a man in the gospel and from the tyranny and the slavery and the deception that this culture knows what manhood is. No, it doesn't. Culture is not the authority on manhood. The Word of God is. And there is life in embracing it. Let's bow our heads in prayer together as a family. Father God, thank you for this opportunity to worship you in song and in prayer. And Lord, you are teaching me how much I'm a product of my own upbringing. I often read your word and I enforce and assume my understanding on it. Lord, I read your word and excitedly I see things and I learn things and then I come to church and I'm all afraid and I'm a coward. Because Lord, one of the things that really struck me was this idea of raising hands over the people. And so Lord, I stand bowed and my hands raised above these people, not because I'm special, but because you're amazing. And Lord, I pray that your blessing would be upon the people that are gathered here and their needs. And Lord, I pray that for all those that are struggling, Father, there are people in this room and they are struggling with doubts and fears and hurts. 
And I pray that they will know that, Father, you love them and you lived perfectly for them and they don't have to be afraid and they don't have to perform. And it's not about being religious, but about trusting you, believing in you and following you. Lord, some are here and they're in denial. Some are bitter. Father, the idea here is we're going to learn over the next couple of weeks is for men and women to be united that there's no secret uh, grudges and secret agendas, no desires to outshine each other or to enforce our will over people, but, Father, to truly submit ourselves to you. And so, Father God, I pray that as a church, we will follow you and love you and love each other. Father, I pray for this city. Oh, God, would you save men and women and use us to shine the light of the gospel. Change our hearts, Lord. Don't make us afraid of what it means to be men and women. But Lord, indeed, may we be holy. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Let's stand together. We're going to sing a wonderful hymn. Holy, holy, holy.